You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, April 6, 2021. I'm Koda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in ASCSU elections and issues. And I cover the third Fort Collins bank robbery in a month. And then you'll be hearing a conversation between myself and Pooter Wilderness volunteers about their campaign to rebuild the trails following 2020's wildfires. Jacob Selby tells us about NASA's Ingenuity helicopter. Then Fisher, Fitz, Randolph, and Ayman Aunat discuss how U.S. government communicates with its citizens. After that, I update you on new information on COVID-19, and then I'm speaking to Natalie Whalen from the Collegian about the recent ASCSU election. To conclude the show, Coda gives us some updates on Supreme Court technology issues, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello everyone, this is Ellie Shannon, and we are in our 12th week of classes here at Colorado State University. Spring break is next week, so make sure to get your saliva test done either at Mac Gym, Moby Arena parking lot, or at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital on South Campus. President Joyce McConnell announced her initiative, the Courageous Strategic Transformation, on March 30th. The framework for the plan was developed in 2020 by the Executive Leadership Team and Council of Deans according to Kate Jericho of CSU's College News. The plan aims to improve the university when faced with tough choices and to help CSU's work in areas such as sustainability, food security, and even COVID-19 related issues. Implementations of the plan are expected to start by January of 2022 and revisions will continue even after implementations are made. President McConnell said to Jericho of CSU's College News, quote, This is not a plan that we will draft and it will sit somewhere and we'll never go back to it. We're going to have an active process of planning, of doing and reflecting on outcomes, and then replanning. So we'll be in this constant cycle of evaluation, end quote. More updates are to come on this. The ASCSU elections were held last week and Christian Dixon and Mary Gabretzidik were elected as the student president and vice president of ASCSU for the 2021-2022 school year. Kyle Hill was also elected as Speaker of the Senate. In total, roughly 4,000 students voted, according to Natalie Wayland of the Collegian. Dixon and Gabretzidik emphasized to improve systems among ASCSU and to help abolish U plus 2 in Fort Collins. Hill ran their campaign focusing on unity within the student body. Congratulations to all the individuals that were elected, and we are excited to see your work over the next year. More news from ASCSU. This week, President Hannah Taylor proposed a bill that would move allocated funds from projects that were not used due to coronavirus. According to C.C. Taylor of the Collegian, Taylor even mentioned the allocation of funds from these projects could include updating computers. Other bills were proposed by senators of ASCSU, such as a bill that would hold members within the Multicultural Greek Council accountable for sexual harassment and assault. This bill, along with another to add diversity and inclusion requirements to ASCSU's constitution, are among some that many are hoping are passed. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. And always make sure to listen to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to 90.5 FM. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for the day. Three fully vaccinated employees at two nursing homes in Fort Collins have tested positive for COVID-19 this week. According to J.C. Marmaduke and Pat Ferrier at the Coloradoan, two others tested positive in between their first and second doses, and all those who tested positive are asymptomatic and were identified through routine testing. Larimer County health officials say the newly identified cases among people who have been fully vaccinated, known as breakthrough cases, are not a cause for concern about vaccine efficacy. In all, two employees at Brookdale Fort Collins Memory Care and four at LeMay Avenue Health and Rehabilitation tested positive in new outbreaks reported this week. Twelve other newly reported outbreaks brought the total number of new outbreaks to 14 this week. Samples from five of the positive cases at the nursing facilities have been sent to the state for further testing to determine if the workers are infected with a variant of COVID-19. 
Corey Wilford, the spokesperson for the Larimer County Health Department, says, quote, It's not surprising to see vaccine breakthrough cases since no vaccine is 100% effective. Vaccine breakthrough cases are not in and of themselves cause for concern. In fact, we expected them to appear because that's what happened to a small group of people in the clinical trials, too, end quote. She also says that it's unclear if fully vaccinated people may be less infectious or have short infectious periods, but so far, data shows that this is likely the case. Locally, there have been only a handful of reported breakthrough cases, including the cases at Brookdale and LeMay Avenue Health and Rehabilitation. Fort Collins police are asking for the public's help in investigating the third bank robbery in a month. According to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan, police say First Bank at 2315 South College Avenue was robbed at about 3 p.m. March 31st. A man entered the bank and demanded cash from one of the tellers while indicating that he had a gun. He fled the bank with an undisclosed amount of money, according to the news release. Police say that nobody was injured in the incident. Police described the man as about... Five foot two, with tattoos on his wrists and hands. Police are asking residents in the neighborhood among, along Columbia Road with doorbell cameras or surveillance footage to see if they captured any vehicles or people at the time of the robbery that may be connected to the robbery. Police spokesperson Kate Kimball says that this is the third bank robbery reported in Fort Collins in the past month, and police are still investigating the other two in partnership with the FBI. On March 2nd, police responded to a reported robbery at Wells Fargo, 320 East Harbonite Road. The suspect is described as a 5'5", 5'6", athletic man with a slender build. Chase Bank, 2820 East Harmony Road, was also robbed March 11th. Police described the suspect as an adult male with a face tattoo. Investigators have not determined if these robberies are connected in any way, but they are looking into the possibility, Kimball says. Anyone with information about any of these robberies can call Detective Brian Vogel at 970-416-2392. People can submit anonymous tips through Crime Stoppers of Larimer County at 970-221-6868 or at stopcriminals.org. The Colorado Department of Transportation has begun bridge maintenance work on four bridges along I-25 and Highway 287 in Larimer County. According to a CDOT press release, they expect completion to occur in October of this year. During the maintenance work, there will be single lane closures and full road closures, as well as full closures of the bridges on County Road 66 over I-25 and County Road 58 over I-25. Drivers can expect slowdowns and delays during commutes. CDOT asks drivers to drive safely around the work areas when work crews are present and use detour signs to navigate around the area when the full road closures are in effect. That's all I have for today. Coming up after the break is the RMR Sports Report and more. Stay tuned. Over the last decade, the music community in Northern Colorado has grown into a vibrant resource for local musicians and talents. KCSU wants to continue to foster this growth by helping create a network between musicians in the creative industry. That's why we created the Band Directory, a new resource for local talent. KCSU invites individual musicians or bands looking to connect with others, find new members, start up a band, or pursue other creative purposes to utilize this directory. You must be 18 or older to fill out this form. All information provided to us will be published on our website. To find the form, go to kcsufm.com and click on the services tab. This past year has brought some interesting challenges and KCSU wants to hear your voice. Looking back at the past year, how do you think universities could have handled COVID-19 better? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts for the chance to be featured on 90.5 KCSU.
Today, I'm joined by a few of the Poudre Wilderness volunteers who've been assisting in restoration efforts following the Cameron Peak fires, which caused evacuations and destruction in 2020. So to start off with, would each of you mind introducing yourselves? Well, my name is Mike Corbin. I'm currently the chair of PWV. I also run our restoration program. And uh, I'm Jeff Randa, and I am a, uh, a volunteer member of uh, PWV, working on the, uh, the GoFundMe campaign. Could each of you give us a little bit of background on the history of the Pooter Wilderness Volunteers? Okay, well, I've been around the longest, so I'll start. We started 26 years ago. The Forest Service used to have like 30 summer hires every summer to do trail work. And last year they had one. So 26 years ago, our founders started PWV as a volunteer group, basically to replace all the uh, uh, summer hires that Forest Service no longer have. And we started with like 40 people the first year, and now we're up to 300, just a little bit over 300 most years. And we both patrol the trails to educate the public, and we patrol all the the forest trails in the, in our ranger district, Canyon Lake Ranger District. We also do basic trail work, which is drainage work, removing trees from the trails. Uh, one year we cut over 2,600 trees off trails. And we also have the restoration program where we do major rebuilds or builds of new trails. After the 2012 fire, we rebuilt several trails. And after the floods in 13, we did major reconstruction where we basically totally rebuilt the North Fork and the Young Gulch Trail. Yeah, and the, and the, uh, the region we kind of work with uh, Canyon Lakes Ranger District is uh, within the Roosevelt National Forest, which Mike, I think is over what, 600,000 acres? Uh, yes. So that kind of helps, helps folks understand the, uh, the area that we cover. For sure. And then why did each of you personally decide that it was important to get involved with this group? Well, personally, I retired and moved up here from beautiful Houston, Texas. And my wife and I were hiking two, three times a week. And we kept running to these people from Puda Wilderness. And we said, well, heck, we're out here anyway. We just, well, you'll contribute something. So we got involved to do some hiking. And then we kept keep getting drug in, do more and more stuff. And I'm relatively new to Fort Collins. I have a real passion for the environment and the outdoors and the maintenance of public lands. And when I looked at various groups to volunteer with, by far PWV was the strongest. Uh, the processes, the commitment, uh, the work that they focus on within trail restoration and educating the public uh, really made it a no-brainer to join this group. And as I've been involved in the past couple of years, uh, everything that I've thought would happen has. So, Mike, I think we're what the second largest, maybe even the largest uh, public lands volunteer group in the country. We're and, the largest uh, by membership. We're typically the second largest by hours. Right. And the other thing that intrigued me is that we are 100% volunteers. There's no paid staff. So it's totally dedicated by a range of age groups, basically. I know we have some volunteers from CSU, ranging uh, anywhere up to folks 80 years old. So it's a really nice mix of people, really dedicated towards working the trails. Uh, and that's why I joined, frankly. For some background, would either of you mind explaining the level of destruction caused by the wildfires last year? Well, that's a little hard to say because we haven't been up in most of the burn area yet. And you have, currently you just have burn damage and it varies from light ground burn, which is actually beneficial to the forest, to pretty much total devastation. And those areas can be right next to each other. So it's a very spotty fire and fires tend to be that way. The total devastation is basically Currently, nothing's burning, uh, growing there. In the spring, we will get a few plants, uh, but it would take you know, years and years to get much of a forest at all. The uh, lightly burned areas, you know, in the spring, it will be have grasses and plants, and in a couple of years, you won't be able to you even tell there was a fire there. In the total devastation areas, uh, and that covers about a third of the total burn area, I'm told. Uh, we will 
we will have not only removing trees, but you have the problem once the spring melt happens and it rains, you may get some major erosion and damage to trails and bridges. And that is really the much harder frustration to do. Cutting trees is fairly straightforward. Uh, rebuilding trails and bridges can be fairly complicated. All right, and then kind of moving from there, can you tell us about how you both are working with this new campaign and restoration effort? Yeah, I can talk a bit about the campaign. This is the first time we've done something like this, just because the magnitude of the fire is, is way above and beyond the normal kind of activities and work that we do. So we need some help raising money both to hire labor to help us with trail restoration and bring in folks to help Mike's team, as well as to pay for supplies for lumber and uh, and other parts of bridge restoration. So the campaign launched a week ago, and it's really focused on you know touching individuals who are passionate about the outdoor trails. And we've been um, totally humbled by the the contributions we've received the past week and and also the support from local organizations local other uh, nonprofits really across the state of Colorado and um, and then the in the print media a lot of good articles on what we're doing because really the impact of Cameron Peak is so large it really affects people really beyond just the Fort Collins area it's really a statewide issue so like I said, we've been humbled by this campaign response the last seven days and the support we're getting. You know, Jeff's job was raising the money. Fortunately, I don't have to do that. My job is to spend the money. And we'll do that, as Jeff said, on materials. Uh, bridge materials tend to be fairly expensive. And then also we will have public days where we invite the public out. and We feed them lunch. That's not very expensive, but we get some good labor there. And then we do at times hire troll crews uh, from both the county and other groups uh, that they have either high school or college crews. And we hire them, they come out and we provide the technical expertise of what to do and they provide the young muscle. One of the uh, unintended consequences beyond just the funds is the request from four or five local organizations to sponsor company work days with Mike's group. So. I think the outpouring of people asking, how can I help beyond just the money, once again, surprisingly caught us off guard. It's, it's a good thing. So, All right. And then speaking of how can people support this campaign? Well, they can come out on our work days and uh, get filthy and help us uh, remove trees and rebuild the trails. So and, and the, way, the way to do that, frankly, is just go to uh, pwv.org. And you can send us a quick email on, I'd like to help Mike support the trails with uh, strong backs or whatever support he may need. Or if you financially want to contribute, the, uh, the GoFundMe campaign, which is entitled Reopen Your Favorite Trails, is also on our website. So sign up to work or sign up to give, or both would be truly appreciated. And we do not yet have the dates for our public days. We are coordinating with each some other volunteer groups in town, but we don't want to step on each other's dates. So those will be out hopefully by the end of next week and they'll be on our webpage. All right. And then how do you think that volunteering with this group and in general, how do you think PWV has really supported our community and allowed for these spaces to continue to exist after damage has been caused? Well, there's two phases. Our normal work every year is, uh, trail work is clearing trails. Uh, if you don't clear your trails every year, you, your trails go away. I've traveled across the country and seen some forests without volunteer groups. They don't have trails anymore. The trees fall and, and you just can't get down the trail. And then uh, this major restoration effort, again, the Forest Service, frankly, doesn't have the, the budget to repair the, all these trails. They've gotten some extra money this year, but uh, not near enough to do it. So without volunteer labor, basically the trails go away. And you also have the risk, um, what I've learned by volunteering with this group, is the risk of um, possible tree damage and or falling on folks when they're hiking. 
can be significant. So the last thing you want is someone hiking on a trail and a tree uh, tumbles down. So that's one chore that Mike's group will do is remove at-risk trees to help prevent any, um, any risk to hikers and backpackers and trail runners. And then before we go, do either of you have anything else to add about working with this group? Well, we consider ourselves a boots-on-the-ground group. We go out there and do stuff. So there is a fair amount of hard work if you want to, uh, but we're all volunteers and we do have a lot of fun out there. So we try to have a good time, be safe, and get a little bit of work done here and there. So it, it is fun, but it is also very rewarding when you actually complete a trail and get it open again. I cannot say it any better than that. <laughs> all right. Thank you both so much. Again, that was Mike Corbin and Jeff Randa from the Pooter Wilderness Volunteers. And they were just speaking about their group and its plans to restore areas impacted by wildfires in 2020. We'll be right back with Jacob Selby's National News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. KCSU thanks Tribal Rights for their continued underwriting support. Tribal Rights is located on College Avenue in Old Town, Fort Collins, and is a full custom tattoo, body piercing, and jewelry studio. Learn more at tribalrightstattoo.com. Hello, you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. I'm Jacob Selby, and these are the national news highlights for Tuesday, April 6th. NASA successfully landed the first drone capable of flight onto Mars. According to Morgan McFall-Johnson of Business Insider, NASA successfully deployed its Ingenuity helicopter on the Red Planet and currently prepares to make a powered flight. NASA states that they expect the helicopter to be able to make a powered flight on Mars by mid-April. This achievement marks a historic accomplishment in aviation history, and if successful, it will be the first time humanity has ever flown an aircraft on another planet. To celebrate the occasion, Ingenuity is fitted with a piece of fabric from the Wright Flyer attached to it, the first powered aircraft to fly in human history on Earth in 1903. The small helicopter drone hitched a ride to Mars with the Perseverance rover, which landed on the planet last month. NASA announced that Ingenuity successfully separated from Perseverance and is now fully independent on the planet. The helicopter incorporates a contra-rotating blade design, praised for its stability and use in many drones and remote-controlled aircraft here on Earth. However, special considerations had to be taken for the design since the atmosphere of Mars is significantly thinner than Earth's along with gravity on Mars. Furthermore, solar panels were attached to the drone, allowing it to be charged and flown multiple times over the course of the mission. If successful, the mission could fundamentally change how we explore other planets in the future and allow us significantly greater mobility around Mars to conduct scientific missions in preparation for manned human spaceflight to the planet. New research suggests that the number of attacks against Asian Americans has been on the rise since 2020. The increase is among the worst seen in decades. According to Kimmy Yam of NBC News, over 3,800 reported cases of attacks targeting Americans of Asian and Pacific Islander descent occurred since the beginning of the pandemic. Many experts are terming the phenomenon the racism virus, as attacks targeting Asian communities increased to some of the worst rates in recent American history. The number of attacks reported in the last year is 46% higher than the year prior, a staggering increase alarming the Asian American community. In the wake of the March 16th shooting, where eight people were killed in a racially motivated killing spree, many Americans are now recognizing the magnitude of violence against Asians in our country. According to the Asian American Advocacy Group, Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate, 
also known as the SAAPIH, the attacks have disproportionately affected Asian American women who make up 68% of victims. According to Russell Jung of San Francisco State University, the combined factors of racism and sexism, along with common cultural stereotypes of Asian American women as being weak and submissive, has likely led to them being disproportionately targeted compared to their male counterparts. According to SAAPIH, many hate crimes against Asians go unreported, as victims often do not report the crimes or the crimes are misreported by the police. Perceived blame for the COVID-19 pandemic, ongoing xenophobia against Asians, and targeted rhetoric by some U.S. leaders in high office have led to a storm of targeted hatred against Asian Americans, which has not been seen in this millennium. The increasing amount of discrimination has raised awareness about racism in the U.S., specifically targeting Asian Americans, and many movements begin showing their support for Asian Americans across the country to help fight discrimination. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is taking aim at big tech in the United States and their power to cut off free speech in the modern social media landscape. According to Bobby Allen of NPR News, Thomas has been taking aim at Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, a law which protects technology companies from lawsuits and allows them latitude in deciding what speech will be allowed on their platforms. Criticism over bans on social media and the perceived silencing of Americans' rights to free speech have become an increasingly controversial issue on social media. The banning of former President Donald Trump on Twitter over his role in incitement of violence following the January 6th insurrection of the United States government has led many to question the role of social media in moderating speech on their platforms. Thomas claims that the banning of Trump exposes potential abuses of the protections outlined in Section 203 and says that applying old media standards to the changing landscape of social media is rarely straightforward. Thomas points out that tech giants such as Google and Facebook hold largely unchecked control over their new and vast empires. The pace at which these companies grow goes beyond the ability of the law to keep up with the new and dynamic internet landscape. Many tech giants claim that if people are not satisfied with the censorship they receive on their platforms, they are free to seek out alternatives or to simply not use their services. However, Thomas goes on to say that in the current marketplace, there are simply no alternatives which could meet the same niche as current social media tech giants without falling under their umbrella. Asking people not to use websites and pointing out alternatives would be like asking people not to drive their car and to seek out alternatives such as walking to their destination. For many, there is simply no viable alternative forcing them to follow the guidelines of social media. Thomas argues that the user base and size of modern social media corporations are akin to a common carrier such as telephone companies. However, legal critiques interpreted Thomas's position on Section 230 as dubious at best and cited that his position does not reflect that of the entire court. A long history of cases shows that courts do tend to favor the position of platforms when their rights to moderate their own platform are called into question. The banning of Trump from Twitter is typically viewed as justified by many because he breached the terms of use for the platform by inciting violence. However, the lack of conviction at Trump's second impeachment trial raises even more questions regarding the legitimacy of Twitter's claims. Many law professionals argue that the increasing restrictions and willingness of platforms to ban people over seemingly small infractions may be the catalyst that leads to them having their current special legal protections ultimately stripped. For now, the topic remains highly contentious at best. That's all for the National News Highlights. I'm Jacob Selby, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. That was Jacob Selby with National News Highlights. Now I just want to remind you that DJathon is happening now, and if you want to donate, you can do so by going to kcsufm.com slash donate. If you donate $7.50 or a one-time donation of $90.50, you can join Club 905, which gives you exclusive perks like a KCSU mug or a KCSU t-shirt. Now for a Takes from the Anthropocene episode featuring Fisher Fitz Randolph and Ayman Aonat, to discuss how the U.S. government communicates with its citizens.
Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Fisher. Today, uh, I've got Eamon with me. You want to introduce yourself today, Eamon? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on, Fisher. My name is Eamon Nguyenet. I am a fourth-year cultural anthropology major here at Colorado State University. Right on. Well, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you. First question I want to start off with, why should the government listen to its people? You know what's funny? Why does that question even need to be asked in the first place? <laughs> I ask myself this every day, and uh, while I was developing this podcast, it just... It was so frustrating to have to think about this. Yeah, so why should the government listen to their people? Democratic governments and democratic republics are made for the purpose for the people. You know, it's not run by a single individual. It's run by the people and for the people. People who are, you know, knowledgeable or experts in their fields should have a say in how things are conducted. You know, it doesn't make sense for the government to take hold and take, like, control of the wheel when they may not have any clue on how to control the wheel or, like, where to go in the first place. So it is extremely frustrating. Why have democratic republics if you're not going to listen to the people? That's mm -hmm. what I ask myself. Why? Wow. So the first example I'd like to bring up is from a book. And this book is called Silent Spring. And it is written by Rachel Carson. And it is a very insightful book written about pesticides in America and why it is such a toxic culture and such insustainable way of dealing with pests and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I'd like to bring up one point in the book that she made. She she brought up an instance in Michigan in 1959. There was an infestation of a Japanese beetle in the area, and the United States government went ahead and sprayed roughly 27,000 acres, mm. right? Wow. And before they even started spraying, there was already public outcry. They're like, people of Michigan in the city, I can't remember, they were just voicing their opinions. Why do we need the spraying? Why? It's, it's going to damage the environment. It's going to damage our homes, and like, it's just going to make life so much more difficult for us here. Mm. But the government just w went ahead on and did it anyway. But as a result of the went on spraying, bird populations got wiped out. People started becoming sick. You know, dozens of houses. There was a layer of chemicals on top of people's roofs. And people have voiced their opinion saying that th before the spraying even started, they're like, why do we need to spraying? Hmm. But the government just completely brushed aside all concerns. In the following year, in 1960, the government went ahead and threw $375,000 to chemical pest control research. Hmm. Which, if you do the math and bring it up after inflation today, it is near $3.3 million wow. into pest control research. Wow. And that number surprised me. It, it, the number legitimately blew me away. Like, my jaw dropped when I saw $3.3 million. But why my jaw dropped, I'll get into next. The government only funds roughly about $6,000 into actual biological, ecological research wow. in 1960. That number today is $52,000. It is, it, is it is excruciatingly painful to see the lack of funding in these sustainable programs. Yeah. Why? Because these scientists have spent years, years studying the ecological foundation of you know, this area. And they know what happens you know, when a species is removed or completely like, extinct. Mm. And, what ha and how that plays into like, the repercussions of other pests and other environments and stuff. And it's just, it's just a complete mess. Completely removing one species from an environment is detrimental. Yeah. To not only the environment, but the other animals and other species that rely on that pest itself, whether in good or bad ways. Mm. Yeah. But the government just went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. And it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating because we see this not only in cases of like pesticide, but like just recently, you know, in the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. You know, President Trump for the first couple months refused to acknowledge that there was any sort of problem. And until he had his, you know, pressure points pushed, then did he acknowledged Dr. Fauci, and then brought in doctors to actually start speaking to the public. But at that point, it was already too late. When was it? It was, uh, it was like May or June when Dr. Fauci took yeah. his position. Yeah. It is extremely infuriating to see this. And we see this not only with pandemics and pesticides, we see this with climate change. And it's it's so it's so frustrating to see this, man. And like I'm just, I'm just trying to like hold it back. But like people who know what they're talking about are not getting listened to. Yeah, wow. I want to bring up another book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's a book written about anthropologists, same government as the United States, or a very similar government to the United States. It's a presidential republic or a democratic republic, whichever you choose to, to pick. Okay. Now, Peru at this time had a rampant drug-resistant tuberculosis pandemic kind of sweeping the country. Now, what I mean by drug-resistant tuberculosis is essentially, I'll give you an analogy. So you have patient A and then you have patient B. Both patients have the same strain of tuberculosis, right? They both have the same doctor. They both got prescribed the same medication, right? And the same duration as well. So they were supposed to take this medication every day for one month, mm -hmm. okay? Patient A 
took the drug that the doctor prescribed him. Okay, took one pill every day for a month, and at that point, the the tuberculosis strain with inside him, and at that point, the tuberculosis within him got treated. So when patient A took all the prescriptions that he needed to take and followed what the doctor told him, the tuberculosis wasn't as rampant with inside him, and it was treated, right? But patient B. Okay, patient B only only took his prescriptions for about two weeks, mm. and then because he he justified that by saying, "Oh, I'm I'm starting to feel a lot better. You know, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm not coughing. I'm not feeling ill. I don't need to take the rest of my prescription anyway. I'm done. I'm just going to throw it out or keep it to the side or whatever." Yeah, but the tuberculosis within him is still there, mm. and that tuberculosis that survived just grew more inside of him. And then you know, whenever you're coughing and spitting and talking or whatever, then it's becoming it's it's transmitting to other people. This strand of tuberculosis is interesting because it withstood the drug that the doctor prescribed him because he didn't take the full prescription and didn't do what he needed to do. This tuberculosis strain is now resistant to drugs mm-hmm. and the previous drugs that it took because it evolved to survive that drug. Yeah. Now, while Peru was dealing with this whole thing, Dr. Farmer saw that this was just a rampant epidemic inside of Peru. So he decided to do something about it. He went and found um, tuberculosis drugs for cheap from uh, this other you know, third-party company. And then he came to Peru and he started treating Peruvian citizens. But here's the interesting thought. The Peruvian government walked up to this doctor who is trying to help their people mm. due to the lack of health care and just funding yeah. for this program in Peru. They told him that he had no legal right to practice there, and they asked him to leave, and he's no longer welcome back. Hmm. And when I read this, like, my jaw dropped. This man is trying to help your people when you cannot Hmm. listen to him and have him explain to you what the whole situation is instead of just closing the door in his face when he's trying to help your people, the Peruvian people. Right, right. It is insanely infuriating, and at the end of the day, it just seems like egos. It's a battle of egos, and I know more, so don't tell me what I can and cannot Mm. think or do or whatever. And then one more instance I would like to bring up is indigenous communities. So within indigenous communities, there is this concept of traditional ecological knowledge. Okay, This concept brings indigenous people together with nature and they help cultivate this relationship Mm. together, correct? Yeah. But what is interesting is that indigenous people, you know, they've lived in what we call the United States for centuries, for centuries. They know this land better than we do. Now, the traditions that they use to take care of the land involve this idea of controlled burning. Now, controlled burning is something that they use to keep the forest tame, you know, take care of the forest, make sure it didn't get too overgrown and too dangerous. So they took care of it. They burned specific parts of the forest, but then still controlled it so that it didn't turn into a wildfire. Now, recently in the United States, at least as far as I can remember, you know, I'm only 21 years old, but ever since I was a kid, I remember hearing on the news about, you know, California wildfires. And just recently, in like the last couple of months, we've had enormous, enormous wildfires, not only in Colorado, but in like in California as well and other parts of the country. Mm. And just recently, the United States has reached out to indigenous people for their help in maintaining wildfires. Because at this point, the United States just didn't care. Mm. They left forests to become overgrown, and they just didn't take care of it. And even Donald Trump went on and said that they need to start cleaning the forests. What does that, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that even mean to you, Fisher, cleaning the forests? I, I imagine somebody with a mop and a bucket full of soapy water cleaning the trees in the forest. Ground. I guess so. I guess so, right? <laughs> but it's, 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 it's ideas like this. You, know, you think you know something when you don't, when you don't actually. You know, why not ask the people who know what they're doing? Yeah. The government has started reaching out to indigenous people to ask, you know, how to take care of national parks. Mm. Finally, finally, after all this time. Mm. And it is, it's, it's honestly so sad to see our government not listen to the people that are in charge. And not only our government, but the people within the country itself. But that's, that's a discussion for a different day. Yeah, yeah. So it, it seems like money and ego and ignorance are all some major factors that lead governments or these governing bodies to ignore the experts. Is there any other ideas or, or broad things that you can think of that might lead the government to not listen to the people, not listen to the experts? Yeah, of course, Fisher. The government can throw legislation and money and funding all they want, you know, all the live long day at problems, but it's not going to fix it unless we just listen. Yeah. And that's the answer to your question. Yeah. What can the government do to help solve these problems? It's just listen. Mm. It's just so plain and simple. Listen to the people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, 
not only the scientists, not only the indigenous people, but just everybody, mm. you know, experts in these fields. You know, you can't just throw money at it and expect everything to go away. Yeah. You know, throwing funding at these unsustainable programs when there are clearly sustainable ways to take care of problems that are not detrimental to not only ourselves, yeah. but the ecology of a certain area, the species of a certain area, and just the overall country. It is infuriating to have to have these conversations after so long and after so many issues. Finally, finally, you know, governments are starting to listen to their experts after so long and frankly, to be honest, a bit too late. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing all this, Eamon. Some pretty inspiring stuff. Anything else that you would leave your listeners uh, with an action step, with an idea of, of what they might do today to help uh, combat this issue? Yeah, of course. And it just comes back to that main idea. Just listen. Just yeah. keep your ears open and keep your eyes open. And just, you know, understand that, you know, problems need to be solved with the proper people taking care of them. And I know that sounds very, like, narrow and, like, mm. whatever, but it, it's it's true. Yeah. Like, who would you trust to, you know, fix your toilet? It's like a plumber. You know, you wouldn't call your mailman to come fix your toilet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you call people in charge. And I think that's what, you know, we should do yeah. as a people. And we should, you know, f like, not force, but as a people, we should strongly encourage and urge our government to listen to these people. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Eamon. We appreciate your time and have a great day, everyone. Yep. Thank you. This past year has brought some interesting challenges and KCSU wants to hear your voice. Looking back at the past year, how do you think universities could have handled COVID-19 better? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts for the chance to be featured on 90.5 KCSU. Hey KCSU listeners, do you want to continue hearing local news every odd hour and on every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. with the Rocky Mountain Review? KCSU's DJ-a-thon fundraisers April 5th through the 9th. Join Club 905 and support local news by calling 970-491-5278 or by donating online at kcsufm.com slash donate. Again, that number was 970-491-KCSU. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 3,000 cases of COVID-19. As the university prepares to send students living in residence halls on campus home and move classes online for the remainder of the semester. Larimer County's risk score moved down to medium this weekend and remains in level yellow concern on the state's Dial 3.0 framework. In the past 24 hours, 70 new cases were reported, and each day in the past two weeks saw a minimum of 15 new daily cases. Not a single day in the past two weeks saw over 10% of tests administered come back positive for COVID-19. Larimer County reports a case rate of nearly 380 per 100,000 residents, which is considered high. 27 COVID patients currently are receiving treatment in area hospitals, which are at 63% overall capacity. Intensive care unit utilization is at 49%, a significant decrease from last week. The state of Colorado reports nearly 469,000 COVID-19 cases and over 6,200 deaths due to COVID-19. 2.7 million have received testing in the state, which reports over 4,300 outbreaks. All Colorado residents are now eligible for the vaccine for COVID-19 from Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. Vaccines are in limited supply, so if you plan to get the vaccine, be sure to look at scheduling now. For more information on how you can get vaccinated, visit vaccinefinder.org. Nationally, the United States reports 30.8 million cases of COVID-19, with an increase of 76,000 Monday. Deaths reached over 555,000 Monday, with an additional 530 cases compared to Sunday. 
Cases went up by 20%, while deaths decreased by 24%. The best methods in COVID-19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks, and keeping social distance from others outside of your household. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Next up on the Rocky Mountain Review, we're hearing from Natalie Wayland of the Collegian. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Wayland from the Collegian to discuss the recent ASCSU election. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To start off with, as many of us know, Christian Dixon and Mary Gibratsadik were elected last Thursday to serve in the executive ASCSU roles. What were their campaign promises and why does it matter? So um, Dixon and Gibratsadik were running on a platform that focused a lot on transparency, especially within um, how student funds are used. Um, One of the main ideas that Dixon talked about was having kind of a New York Stock Exchange style ticker on the ASCSU website to show um, where and how student funds were being used just so it's you know right there on the website for people to see um a lot of the other the other main campaign um uh, ideas that they tossed around was the idea of radical inclusion that's the phrase they used which basically just is the effort to kind of you know make sure that campus is a really welcoming community for all students they talked about wanting to implement a university-wide framework for pronoun usage as well as um adding more all-inclusive gender bathrooms in campus buildings. And of course, they also ran on a platform of trying to get rid of U plus two. All right, thank you. And then how was student turnout this semester compared to last semester and last year? Yeah, so um, according to Morgan May, the elections manager, um, this election saw a turnout of 4,039 total votes, which comes out to about 13.79% of the student body. Obviously, this is lower than last semester because the September election had a 15.33% turnout. Um, And then the year before, there was a 26.6% turnout, um, which um, may again just attributed this to COVID. You know, there's not very many students on campus, so all of the campaign efforts really did not reach as wide of an audience as they did in previous years. Um, But Dixon and Gebersetic won um, with a total of 1,706 votes in this election. All right. And then Kyle Hill was also elected to serve as the Speaker of the Senate alongside the President and Vice President. How did his platform compare to the presidential and vice presidential platform? Yeah, so um, Kyle Hill's platform had his main focus was on unity, just kind of as a campus. He talked a lot about how... um, you know, campus is really divided right now, you know, politically in all sorts of different areas. Um, So he really wanted to get back to that sense of unity as far as um, the student body goes. Um, He also had a focus on, you know, better representation and kind of amplifying student voices and making sure that their voices are heard within ASCSU, which um, a lot of his platform lines up really well with um, the presidential and vice presidential platform, um, just because they both really had a, a large focus on amplifying student voices, making sure student voices were heard, and that ASCSU was taking all of that advice and that feedback into account just to make sure they're being as effective as they possibly can. So I think it's going to be really easy for them to work together on that. For sure. And then how do all of these candidates really plan to work together on solving the issues facing students and making ASCSU more accessible and transparent for students? Yeah, so I haven't heard anything specific about how they plan to work together, but I think, you know, their their platforms do really mirror each other very well. They both want, you know, transparency, um, representation, unity, all that kind of stuff, just to make sure that ASCSU is more transparent and inclusive of students. They want to make it a more inclusive space for everyone, especially, you know, Kyle Hill talked about wanting to make the Senate a more inclusive space. So I think... um, it'll be really easy for them both to work together considering their platforms were so well mirrored of each other. All right. Thank you again. Do you have anything you would like to add about the election at all? Um, I don't. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Natalie. Okay. Again, that was Natalie Whalen from the Collegian talking about the recent ASCSU election. Next up, we're going to be hearing tech news updates. But first, we're going to go on a quick break. So stay tuned for those tech news updates in about a minute.
Did you know that the National Audubon Society has a regional office in Fort Collins? Audubon Rockies protects birds and the places they need in Colorado and Wyoming through science, outreach, and policy. Find out how you can help Audubon Rockies empower people through community science, volunteerism, and grassroots advocacy at rockies.audubon.org. That's rockies.audubon.org. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News Highlights for Tuesday. The Supreme Court sided with Google Monday in relation to a copyright dispute with Oracle over Google's creation of the current Android operating system. According to Jessica Gresco from the Associated Press, Google used over 11,300 lines of code originally used in Oracle's Java in the creation of the operating system. Google argued that this is common practice in tech, which doesn't copyright functional and non-creative code as it couldn't be written in any other way. Oracle argued that Google, quote, committed an egregious act of plagiarism, end quote. Supreme Court judges ruled 6-2 to two in favor of Google with Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito siding with Oracle. The argument on this case originally occurred just after the passing of Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is why only eight justices were present for the vote. Discord, a gaming-focused group chat app, says it banned over 2,000 extremist communities from its platform. According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, the app has grown significantly since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Discord employees say that around 68% of all reported extremist activity was detected by Discord, and users detected the remaining 22%. In a recent transparency report, Discord said, quote, We continue to believe there is no place on Discord for groups organizing around hate, violence, or extremist ideologies, end quote. Some of the disabled group chats include pro-Trump conspiracy theories and QAnon communities. 334 QAnon groups faced removal between July and December of 2020 alone. Yahoo Answers shuts down on May 4th of this year. According to Nick Stat at The Verge, this will include the archives from the site from the past 16 years. Yahoo Answers will soon redirect users to the Yahoo homepage. Many Yahoo Answers posts and answers served both those seeking answers and those seeking comedy alike. And after May 4th, users have until June 30th to request their own data from the platform. Information about the future of Yahoo Answers is given to users if they click on a message which redirects to an FAQ section. Yahoo Answers will no longer accept submissions to its forums on April 20th, 2021. Before we head into our break, I do want to talk about DJathon, which, as you may know as our listeners, has been happening for the past about two days now, and we are very excited about it. So if you want to donate to make sure that the news programs can still go on as they are right now, you can do that at kcsufm.com donate. You can donate any amount, but if you donate a one-time donation of $90.50 or a monthly donation of $7.50, you can join Club 905 and you will receive either a mug or a KCSU t-shirt, as well as Club 905 emails with sneak peeks to exclusive KCSU giveaways and content. Additionally, you can donate by calling us at 970-491-6643 while our show airs, or 970-491-5278 starting at 5 p.m. Now we'll be right back with Weird News with Ivy Winfrey, and today's is pretty exciting, so stay tuned. radio vibes. Oh, I got you, BB. You know that college radio is more than just the Coachella lineup, right? It's also like metal and sports and EDM and news and jazz and KCSU, where college radio is more than just college radio. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes we need to get a little bit weird. So here's a couple of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. Colorado is auctioning off marijuana-themed license plates until April 20th. 
According to Lauren Dzenski at CNN, Colorado is auctioning off rights for 14 different official state license plates with phrases like bong, ganja, hemp, and is it 420? Colorado Governor Jared Polis tells CNN that the revenue from these weed-themed license plates will go to the Colorado Disability Funding Committee. Based on past similar actions, these license plates have the potential to bring in a significant amount of money. Previous auctions have included the letter X, which sold for $20,000, $5280, which sold for $6,800, and McLaren, which sold for $6,000, according to Polis's office. One license plate in particular has already gained over 90 bids as of April 5th. One that reads Tigridi, a nod to a cannabis farm featured in the Colorado-based South Park cartoon. On the auction site, bidders are cautioned, quote, don't drive high, please use cannabis responsibly within the limits of all Colorado laws, end quote. Bidding is open until 4.20 p.m. Mountain Time on April 20th. Those who don't snag the license plates this year are still in luck. The state plans to hold an auction again next April 20th. A stolen Confederate monument may be converted into a toilet unless the organization United Daughters of the Confederacy displays a political banner. According to Carol Robinson at AL.com, a Confederate monument valued at $500,000 was stolen in March from a Selma, Alabama cemetery, officials confirmed Monday. Monday morning, a group that claims to have taken the monument, the Jefferson Davis Memorial Chair, sent emails to AL.com saying that they will give the chair to the United Daughters of the Confederacy if that organization agrees to hang a banner outside of its headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. In those emails, a group calling itself White Lies Matter say that they stole the chair from the old Live Oak Cemetery and are demanding the UDC hang a large banner at 1 p.m. and leave it there for 24 hours on Friday, April 9th the anniversary of the Confederacy's surrender in the Civil War. The banner bears a quote from Asatas Shakur, a Black Liberation Army activist wanted by the FBI for the 1973 murder of a New Jersey state trooper, which reads, quote, The rulers of this country have always considered their property more important than our lives, end quote. White Lies Matter says that it already delivered the banner to the UDC. The email states that, quote, Failure to do so will result in the monument, an ornate stone chair, immediately being turned into a toilet. If they do display the banner, not only will we return the chair intact, but we will clean it to boot. A woman who answered the phone at the Virginia offices of the UDC said she had heard the reports of the theft and ransom demand were fake news and that there was no immediate response to an email to the organization seeking further comment. Selma Police and District Attorney Michael Jackson confirmed that the theft in that they said they were aware of the ransom demand. The felony theft occurred sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. on March 19th, according to a Selma Police report. The Montgomery Advisor reports that there is a $5,000 reward leading to information about the disappearance of the chair, described as being about three feet tall and weighing several hundred pounds. Italian police say they found a fugitive member of the Mafia posting cooking tutorials on YouTube. According to John Bradokin at Ars Technica, Mark Farron Claude Biart, an alleged member of the Nindracca criminal organization based in southern Italy, reportedly hid his face in the cooking videos but failed to hide his tattoos, leading to his identification. The man had been hiding since law enforcement ordered Biart's arrest in 2014. The BBC reported that the alleged member of the Niagara crime gang was arrested in the Dominican Republic and has now been extradited back to Italy, and that he was wanted by police for allegedly trafficking drugs into the Netherlands on behalf of the Cacciola clan of the Nidroctia Mafia. It's not clear whether the videos are still online, but Bjart and his wife have appeared to have uploaded several cooking tutorials for Italian recipes to YouTube, including ones where Bjart's tattoos were visible. The arrest and YouTube aspect of the story were confirmed by Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization, which helped in the investigation. That's all the stories I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. Today was mostly sunny and cool with a high of 58 and a low of 37, with possible rain showers in the afternoon along with 18 mile per hour winds. 
Wednesday, temperatures will warm up a bit to a high of 64 and a low of 38, with partly cloudy skies and winds around 19 miles per hour. Thursday, skies will be mostly sunny with a high of 70 and a low of 37, with winds slowing down a bit to 16 miles per hour. Remember that we are in our DJ-a-thon fundraiser here at KCSU, and if you want to donate to make sure that weather reports and news, like we just heard, is still available in the future, make sure to donate online at kcsufm.com donate, or by visiting our Venmo at KCSUFM. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Makuz Marathi, Lindsay Johnson, Sam Benefe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this we- without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.